Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you, whether you're joining us in person or online. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And this is our second week in a series called Excuse Me, where we've been talking about some of the different priorities that God has for us in our spiritual lives and the excuses we try to use to avoid them. Now, the trick to a great excuse is that it has got to sound like it's important enough to warrant not doing the thing you're excusing yourself from. So when I was a teenager, I thought I had mastered this skill. My dad, he would give me a job around the house, something like mowing the lawn, and I desperately would not want to do it. And in order to avoid doing it, I would start doing something else around the house that I knew was also supposed to get done in order to avoid mowing the lawn. So my dad, he would notice that mowing the lawn wasn't getting done, and he'd say, hey, James, how's the lawn coming? And I'd respond, yeah, 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 I'm just cleaning my room right now. <laughs> 30 minutes later, no progress on the lawn. He'd be like, James, how's that lawn coming? And I'd respond, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know, I know. I'm just organizing my school stuff right now so that I'm not late for school in the morning. 45 minutes later, and still no progress on the lawn, he'd say, James, when are you going to mow the lawn? And I'd say something like, yeah, I'm just looking through my dirty laundry to make sure that the dog didn't eat one of my socks. I thought that if it seemed like I was doing other important stuff, then if I ran the clock down by doing those things, I might end up being excused from mowing the lawn. Because like I said, the trick to a great excuse is that it needs to sound important enough to keep you from doing the thing that you should be doing. I'll never forget how my dad used to respond when I tried out this strategy. He'd say, James, how's the lawn coming? And I would say back, ah, I'm just brushing the cat right now. No worries. And he'd say, I know what you are doing, but what are you supposed to be doing? That's the thing about excuses, isn't it? So often they feel or they seem legit. We say, I can't do that right now because I'm too busy with this, or I'm really focusing on this other thing. And usually those excuses, they seem valid to us. But the problem with excuses, especially the ones that we have for not living out the priorities that Jesus has for us, is that they may seem worthy or important, and they might be, but in the end, they're just keeping us from doing the things that we should be doing. And that's what this series is all about. We're looking at some of the priorities that God has for us and some of the excuses that we use for not doing them so that we can identify those excuses and not let them keep us from what Jesus has in store for our lives. So with that, let's pray. God, thank you for another chance to gather. Thank you for new members in our church. We are grateful for how you've brought folks into our community here, and through that have continued to give us life and excitement. We do want to lift up Katie Butsky as she got news on cancer this week. We pray specifically for them that you give them wisdom and encouragement and comfort as they go through the following weeks and months. Lord, we want to pray for our new members as well, that you help them plug in in different ways, 
so that they may continue to feel like this is their church and that we may be able to see you use them in various ways. Pray this in your name. Amen. So when Jesus started his ministry, one of the first things that he did was call some different people to become his followers. He went out and he found a few select guys and he asked them to come and follow him everywhere that he went. Check out this example of what it looked like in Matthew 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I want to try and make something clear about this passage that isn't super clear to us at first. And that is, when Jesus called these guys to become his followers, he was calling them to be a part of a community. In the 21st century, when we follow someone, it means something a little bit different than it did in the first century. For example, on Twitter, I follow like a hundred different people. Some of them are pastors, some are theologians, some are famous people. But I clicked that little blue button on their profile that says follow because I was interested in what they had to say, and I wanted to stay up to date on the little nuggets of wisdom they produce in 280 characters or less. In our world, that's kind of what it means to follow someone. If I follow someone, I care enough about what they have to say that I stay up to date on their teachings or their sayings or maybe even their drama. We do this sometimes with different pastors. Say I really like Craig Groeschel as a preacher, so I listen to his sermons while I drive to work and I read his books when I have some spare time. I might be willing to say, yeah, I follow him. What we consider to be following, it tends to be a very individualistic way of following someone's teachings. They say what they have to say, we consider it, and then maybe if it seems like something we agree with, we apply it as we see fit. But when Jesus called his first disciples, he wasn't calling them to spend their time listening to a sage on the stage, only then to go home and figure out how those teachings might apply to their individual lives. No, he was calling them to join into a community of other people who would spend their time together and were hoping that by paying attention to everything Jesus said and did, together their lives would be changed. Let me try and make this more clear. This is, again, chapter 4, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now the young men of Jesus' era, they often dreamt of becoming a follower of a rabbi. It was like the most coveted internship of their time. Like an internship at Google is today, that was following a rabbi. But if a rabbi called you to follow him and you accepted the call, 
it meant that you would spend all of your time with that rabbi. You'd listen to him, you'd do what he did, you'd walk where he walked, you'd sleep where he slept, you'd eat what he ate. And here's the kicker. You would do all of those things with the other select folks who had also accepted the call to be a follower. When a young man accepted this call, he joined into a community of other followers or disciples who were all committed to living together with each other and with this rabbi in effort to become more conformed to what this rabbi taught. And this is exactly what happens with the initial followers of Jesus. Jesus rolls up and he invites these guys to join his growing community with the promise that if they do, they will be changed. He says, come, follow me. If you do, I will transform you from people who fish for fish into people who fish for people. Like I said, the point is that when Jesus called his first disciples, he wasn't just calling them to spend their time listening to a sage on the stage and then go home and figure out on their own how those teachings apply. No, he was calling them to join into a group of other followers. This is how it was in the early church as well. Faith in Jesus in the early church, it meant becoming a part of the community of Christians. You, you really can't read the New Testament without seeing this. Check out this passage. This is Acts 2, starting in 42. And when we look at this, it's important to recognize that the book of Acts doesn't describe the first Christians as individual Christians. Instead, it describes them by talking about what their life in community looked like. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice all the times in that passage that it says, they, they gathered, they studied, they sold what they had and gave to those who needed. They met in large groups at the temple. They met in small groups in their homes. Or just think about the structure of the New Testament. When Paul was writing his contributions to the New Testament, he was not writing abstract theological tomes. No, he was writing letters to small Christian communities about what it looks like to live in community together. Or think about this passage from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's talking here about how Jesus brings Jew and Gentile together, and he says, His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling 
in which God lives by His Spirit. Paul's point is that through Jesus, many who were not a part of God's family have been saved and brought into God's family so that now people who were once separate are brought together and are being built up. He says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. A few sentences later, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. And then he says, and in him you, and by the way, that word you is plural, like y'all, in him y'all too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What's my point in saying all of this? Well, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are not just saved from our sin, we are saved into a community. And when we take the New Testament seriously, we begin to see that we cannot follow Jesus in the way that he intends to be followed unless we are a part of a community of people who are also trying to follow him. Growing in Jesus is meant to be done in community. But the series is called Excuse Me, and today we're talking about some of the excuses that we use, both subconsciously and consciously, that keep us from living into the type of community that Jesus wants us to have. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple other narratives in Matthew where Jesus is either calling people into his group of followers or people are considering whether they want to become a part of that community, and we're going to see some excuses that are common to us. But before we look at those passages, let's be really clear about what we mean when we say community. When I say community, I am not referring to the very large number of people that we're loosely connected to. Instead, I'm talking about the handful of people who you actually share life with. Because there's a stark difference between connectivity and community. The best way to illustrate this might be by talking about Facebook. Uh, Last time I checked, I have 1,170 friends on Facebook. That's a humble brag. Uh, That is, there are 1,170 people who over the last 14 years I have met, and we felt like there was enough connection for us to create a digital bond where we get to occasionally see highlights from each other's lives. I am loosely connected to 1,170 different people. Out of those 1,170 people, there are probably three or 400 people who I actually see at least once a year and have a meaningful interaction with. So out of that 1,170 people that I'm connected to, I have a slightly more meaningful relationship with three or four hundred of them. But here's the deal with the three or four hundred of them. They know a little bit about me. They get to see pictures of dates that my wife and I go on or or fish that I've caught while fly fishing. And they probably have a good conversation or two or three or four with me throughout the year. But the depth of knowledge that we have about each other, it's still pretty low. But out of that three or four hundred people who I'm slightly more connected to, there's a handful of like 10, 20, maybe even just five people who I see regularly, who also love Jesus, and who know me enough to have an understanding of more than just the highlights that I let them see. 
I let those people into my life to see my life a bit more clearly and realistically. We've learned to trust each other. They know me enough to be able to see my habits and strengths and weaknesses and struggles. When we're talking about community, we're not talking about the 1,170 people that we're connected to or the three or 400 people that we have a slightly more meaningful connection to. When we're talking about community, we're talking about building relationships with those 5, 10, or 20 people who get to see more than the highlights that we want them to see. It's the 5, 10, or 20 people that we actually let see what our lives are like. And as Christians, our best growth happens when we start to form that type of community, one where a few other Christians actually start to get to know us and we can live life together. But for some reason, many of us are not eager or willing to try and develop that. So what are some of the excuses from developing those types of relationships? Well, let's look at these couple of passages and see what are more prevalent excuses that keep us from community. This is Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came and said to him, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.' Jesus replied, "'Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head.' Another disciple said to him, "'Lord, first let me go and bury my father.' But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jump ahead a few verses to chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what have we got going on here? Well, Jesus, he's in a crowd, and people are trying to determine if they really want to be his follower or not. And a man comes up to Jesus, and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus, he picks up on something that isn't entirely clear to us at first. So he tells this guy, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And in this interaction, Jesus shines a light onto one of our main excuses for not wanting to build community in the church. And that is, community brings us out of our comfort zone. You see, in this passage, the man who claimed to want to follow Jesus, he was identified as a teacher of the law. This was like a pretty comfortable occupation Maybe it could be kind of compared to a seminary professor. He's tenured. He's got a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house in the suburbs outside Jerusalem. He's got an attached stable for his performance breed camel. He's, he's got it good. Now, the thing that's striking about this interaction, though, is that this guy, he wants to be a follower of Jesus. He's obviously heard Jesus teach, and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus, knowing that this guy's probably not willing to break out of his comfortable cycle, says, hey man, foxes have dens, birds have nests, I don't even have a place to lay my head. 
In other words, are you sure? Your life is pretty comfortable. You've got a nice house, a nest you've created for you and your family, but we're a poor, homeless, traveling band. It's not going to be comfortable to join with us. You're going to have to give up a lot to walk with us. The problem with this guy was most likely that he wasn't willing to break his cycle of comfort to join with Jesus and his followers. And I think that this is definitely one of the excuses that we run into ourselves when it comes to plugging into community. Because there's a certain amount of comfort that comes with keeping people at a distance. My grandpa used to say that the best neighbor is an empty lot. Life is easier when we keep people at a comfortable distance. People are messy. They ask things of us. Add to that, we like to keep people at a distance because it's the people who we are closest to, to get, who get to see the bad parts of us. Just ask my wife. She sees me do home repairs. I, some of you know what I'm talking about there. If we're honest, it's comfortable to let people only see the highlights of our life. When we start to let people get close to us, they get to see the good and the not so good. So the excuse is community, it brings us out of our comfort zone. But the truth is that true growth in Christ happens when we start to build the type of community with other Christians where they get to see what we're really like. And it's worth being uncomfortable to get that. Check out this next excuse. We're still in the same crowd of people as the last one, and another potential disciple comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus told him, though, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now again, this person, they want to follow Jesus, but they say, hey, let me bury my father first. Now scholars, they've argued about what this means, um, and what they've decided is that there's really three potential explanations. It could be that this guy's dad had actually died, and he wanted to finish the funeral and the mandatory months of mourning that the Jewish culture required before becoming a follower of Jesus. Or it could be that this guy anticipated that his parents were not going to be cool with him leaving everything behind. So he says, hey, once my father's gone, then I'll follow you because that'll cause less drama with my family. And the third potential explanation is that this guy wants to wait until his father dies and he receives his inheritance so that he can be more financially secure during his time of following Jesus. No matter what interpretation that you take, what it boils down to is that this guy is saying, Jesus, I want to join up with your community, but this is just not a good time for me. Let me bury my father. Then life will be a little easier for me to get plugged in. This really just isn't a good time. Now this excuse, it's common for us as well. I want to, Jesus, but now's not a good time. We're so busy with school. My kids' sports are relentless. My work is absolutely bonkers. I want to, but now just isn't a good time for me. This is one of those things I want to be delicate with because there are seasons in life where we have to step back from certain commitments because it's an especially hard or busy season. 
And being able to say no to things that are asked of us, that's a really important skill. And we should try and maintain good boundaries with our time. But when it comes to the priorities God has for our life, unless we are willing to make it the right time, it will never just naturally be the right time. If we're waiting for the right time to try and plug into community, it just doesn't come. You're always going to be busy. Life is always going to be complicated. There are always going to be other things that try and keep us from investing in community. We have to make it the right time for community. Now for our third excuse, and this one's actually my favorite. Skip ahead a few verses to chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Did you catch what the Pharisees' excuse to not become a part of the community of Jesus' followers is? They basically say, Ew, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, their excuse is, We don't really like those people. The Pharisees, they saw the type of people in Jesus' community, and what they saw was a group of people they were not excited to be around. You got Matthew, he's a tax collector. He had literally double-crossed his nation and his neighbors to get rich off of extorting them under the authority of the Roman Empire. He had basically sold his soul to the pagan Romans for a chance at being rich. And then you have Simon the Zealot, another follower of Jesus, who was basically a terrorist. He was a militant who wanted to take back the country for the Israelite people, and he was willing to fight, pillage, and destroy to make that happen. Can you imagine how Simon and Matthew got along? Talk about opposite political views there. Then you had Peter, a meager fisherman. Each of these guys represents a diverse and often unwanted part of the populace. And the Pharisees, they look at them and the dregs of society that they tend to spend their time with, and they ask, why does Jesus hang out with these folks? We wouldn't be dead, caught dead joining into a community with people like that. Uneducated people, politically opposite people, unwholesome people. In other words, Jesus, we don't want to join because we really don't like those people who are a part of your group. I will be the first person to raise my hand and admit that while I may not have verbalized it, the thing that has kept me at some point from being a part of a deeper community of believers was that I felt like I didn't want to be a part of a group with those people. Whether it's because we find someone annoying or don't agree with their politics or hate how they seem so arrogant when they answer a question during growth groups, Whatever it is, sometimes we do use this excuse. I love what John Mark Comer says about this excuse. He says, in the church, we often mistake chemistry with community. 
What he means is that we set up this idealistic version of what community is going to be like. I'm going to join a growth group. In that growth group, I'm going to have chemistry with everyone there. I'm going to sit with people who are just like me. Maybe they love fly fishing. Maybe they hate small talk and read books by old dead theologians. It's going to be so good. We're going to click and jive, and I'm going to love it. But then we encounter the reality of community, where we sit down with others who are very unlike us. And oftentimes we disagree with them, and their personalities or politics or their demeanor rubs us the wrong way. So we bail on community because we really don't like those people. There's a reason that the first 12 followers of Jesus were so different. I mean, these guys really didn't have any business being together. But real Christian community is more about formation than it is just making friends. I mean, hopefully we can get both of those things. But the reality is that Jesus took 12 guys, 12 guys with different professions, politics, personalities, and backgrounds, and by putting them together and making them serve together, learn together, travel together, what he was doing was giving them an opportunity to become more like he was. Because we don't learn to love our enemies by only hanging out with people we want to hang out with. And we don't grow to become more compassionate towards others by spending our time with people who live the same way, talk the same way, and do the same things as we do. By placing these 12 guys into a community, Jesus was giving them an opportunity to have their hearts shaped to be more like him, to learn to love and forgive like Jesus does. The Pharisees' excuse was, we don't like those people. The truth is, if you let that excuse stop you, you miss out on the formation that happens with true community. Now let's try and pull all this together. The call of Jesus is not just a call to follow him on our own. The call is to follow Jesus as a part of a community of others who are also trying to follow. And while we may have tons of excuses, the growth that Jesus intends for us happens when we commit to being in community with other believers. So here's the application. Work at building deep and meaningful community with other believers. Simple, right? You guys were supposed to snicker there. <laughs> well, here at the church, we do something called growth groups. On Sunday mornings, we gather as a large group to worship God. And in growth groups, we gather in smaller circles to learn and to build relationships with each other. And today, you actually can start to sign up for a growth group that's going to be participating in our upcoming churchwide series in October. Now, growth groups, they're not perfect, but they are a great place for you to start to build the type of community that helps you grow as Jesus intends for you to grow. So if you're not already in one, let me encourage you to sign up for a growth group. We've got in-person, online, and hybrid options. You can sign up online or simply go to our new community station at the table outside the sanctuary where a team member is going to be there to help you see what groups exist and how you can sign up. But two quick things on growth groups 
to help you as you think about community. First, not every group is going to work for you. That's just the truth of it. But do please give the group that you're trying some time to see if you can build community with the folks in it. If after five, six, seven weeks, it's not working out, that's okay. But please don't give up. The call to community is worth continuing to try and plug in. So if your last group didn't work out, please do try out a different one. And secondly, you get out of a growth group what you put into it. Show up ready to invest in each other. Pray for the people in your group. Be willing to share about your life. Call people during the week to see how they're doing. Just sitting in a circle with eight other people doesn't necessarily build community. You actually have to do the things required of building relationships. So church, let's remember, growing in Jesus is meant to be done in community. So let's not let our excuses keep us from that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for making us as people who need relationships and community. Thank you for saving us not just from our sin, but saving us into your family. Lord, we pray that over the next week or two, you can help us find a place to plug in so that we can start to build those types of relationships that help us grow in our faith. Lord, we pray for our growth group leaders. Help them as they try to cultivate relationships in that context. Keep them encouraged. Help them be growing on their own as well. Lord, help us be a church where community is valued and that we express that in the way that we care for each other and spend time with each other. We ask this in your name. Amen.